0: Well, hello, family. God bless you. Are you ready for the good news? Good, me too. Uh, grab your Bibles, open them up. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, we're again in the Lord's Prayer. We're finishing up Jesus's master masterclass on uh, how to pray. And today we talk about God reordering our relational priorities. We need to ask the Lord, reorder my relational priorities. This is how we pray. So please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Matthew 6, verse 9 through 15. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, you say that all people are like grass. And the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Thank you for giving us today something durable that we can build our life on. Help us hear it, be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, I forgot to put this on. There we go. Um, so in the spring of 1992, Irish rock band U2 released what would be considered its greatest song ever composed. It was entitled One. This song quickly became uh, number one, actually, in the U.S. charts and in the U.K. charts. The song came actually, this kind of the backstory of this song, it came from this period of very intense personal discouragement and also interpersonal conflict, interpersonal friction among the members of the band. they just come off their rattle and hum to her and it was widely panned and it left them disoriented on where they need to go. Each member of the band felt that they had lost their way musically and there was sharp disagreement on which, the, which direction the band should go next, sonically speaking. They couldn't agree. The once strong boyhood relationships were fraying to their breaking point. But then Berlin happened. You two landed in Berlin, Germany, on the day that Germany officially united as one nation again and it impacted them powerfully to see the crowds and what was happening. And the song one came almost like a gift from heaven, according to Bono. You say love is a temple. Love the higher law. You say love is a temple. Love the higher law. You ask me to enter, but then you make me crawl. And I can't keep holding on to what you've got when all you've got is hurt. One life with each other, sisters, brothers, one life, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other. We get to carry each other one. There's an honesty in that song that that really matches with real life, does it not? I mean, we feel in the song, especially when you hear Bono's straining voice as he sings this, we feel in the song the weariness of this constant conflict. This this in this song we feel this desire like I just want to walk away from this relationship. I just can't take one more thing from you. And yet we also hear there's this There's this tinge of optimism at the very end of the song, that this painful breach can be mended. Bono once said of the song in an interview with the L.A. Times, he said, "quote It's not this song is not like let's just all get along. It's not even saying that it's not even saying that we want to get along, but it's saying that we have to get along if the world's going to survive." It's a reminder that we have no choice. End quote. Every U2 concert since 1992 has featured this song. They played it every single concert since 1992. I think uh, the reason that one has endured for decade upon decade is it has had such an international response from people is because it strikes at the core of what it means to be human in this world you know guys we are fundamentally relational beings we've talked about this over and over at the core we are relational beings beings but the problem is we live in a world that's full of injury offense and debt making that's caused both by us and by other people towards us their touch uh, their touch steals instead of heals. It creates relational conflict and friction and yet Jesus calls us into becoming peacemakers we went through that in the beatitudes right? That's what he's calling us into when he call when you say I want to be in part of the kingdom. And so, how should we pray about this very real, very everyday problem? Like, how do we make sense of this and actually get through this? Well, the the answer that we're going to find in Matthew is that we need to pray. We need to pray specifically that our relational priority, our relational pri- priority, would be to make peace. By forgiving our debtors. That's the big idea of of this passage here. I want you to hear that. And so today we're going to talk about, well, what does it actually mean to forgive our debtors? How often do we forgive them? And why should we forgive people that don't deserve it? So first, forgiveness is choosing to absorb a relational debt. Okay. Forgiveness. What is it? It is choosing to absorb a relational debt. So meet me in verse 12. We're going to go to the text here. Jesus says, pray like this, right? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is how we are to pray regularly, okay? There's these two concepts in Matthew, and that's why I included verses 14 and 15, but there's these two concepts in, that Matthew uses to describe what forgiveness is, because it's a big concept throughout the Bible, particularly the New Testament. He uses the word trespass, and he uses the word debt, and he uses them both in the Lord's Prayer. Okay. And these terms are interrelated. Same concept, but these two terms are like hitting it from different sides. Okay. So debt, debt is something that we owe, but we haven't paid it yet. Yes. Right. Okay. Trespass. Trespass is a line that we have crossed that we should not have crossed. So there's this boundary and we've wandered it. We've wandered past the boundary marker. We've crossed the line. That's where we get that. So many of our little proverbs and colloquialisms, have you figured out, have come from the Sermon on the Mount. Not just the Bible in particular, the Sermon on the Mount. It's very interesting to me. And so here's the deal. Sin is defined by Matthew, by Jesus, as this, not doing the right that we should have done. It's not doing the right that we should have done in a particular situation or it is doing the wrong that we ought not to have done but we we did it okay so in other words sin is not just breaking a rule it's not just crossing a line that's typically like what we think about because that's kind of how we're parented okay Sin is also not giving people who are made in the image and likeness of God what they are due. Okay? You know, they don't show respect to us when they speak to us. And they should, because we're made in the image and likeness of God. We are icon. That's the Greek word for that in the Septuagint. They don't tell us the truth. And Christians should be the number one people who tell the truth. But they didn't tell us the truth. They told us half a truth. Or maybe they don't use their authority properly. They misuse it. Maybe they don't protect us when we were under their care as a child. Jesus tells us here that when we forgive someone, we are absorbing a relational debt. That's what we're doing. We are absorbing a relational debt. They owe us something that they have not paid, and we are choosing to like take the loss. Take that out of my account instead of making them pay up. It's saying, I am not going to make you pay up for that. That's really what forgiveness is. And so here it is, guys. To forgive our debtors is primarily a heart posture. It's primarily a heart posture that says going forward, from this point on going forward, I will not seek revenge to settle this score. I am not going to settle this score. Will not going to work to extract from you that apology that you owe me for what you did. I'm not going to work to extract the respect, the thank you, the acknowledgement of what you did that you rightfully owe me. I'm not going to expect that from you, and I'm not going to demand that from you. That's forgiveness. Like in real world terms, that's what it is. Jesus makes something really clear here in the text. Forgiveness is not saying, hey, No wrong was really done here. It's okay. It's not okay. Okay, So that's not forgiveness. It's okay. It's okay. It's no big deal. We're good. That's not forgiveness. When Jesus tells us to pray uh, as we forgive our debtors, he's telling us to call them what? A debtor. You see that in the text? Forgiveness by necessity means calling what they did wrong. That's the only way you can actually forgive that. Does this make sense? This is a very empowering, this is going to be a very empowering message, by the way. When you and I forgive, listen, we're choosing to absorb a real debt, not a hypothetical debt that they owe us, a real debt that they owe us. It did hurt. And it does hurt to absorb that. It does hurt to say, I'm not going to seek to make this right and settle the scores. That hurts because you're the one, I'm the one taking the loss for that. You feel it in your body, don't you? You do feel the loss of that relationship. We had this relationship and now we don't have that relationship right now. And I feel it, it's real. And guess what? Jesus says you have permission to say so. That's part of forgiving someone. OK, that is authentic forgiveness. So forgiveness requires that we call a debt a debt. And not minimize it. And we're really good at minimizing wrongs right now, aren't we? The phone agrees with me. <laughs> we good. OK, uh, We don't minimize the debt, okay? After all, that's what God does when he forgives us. And and see, these two phrases go together, okay? He didn't minimize your sin. He didn't say, hey, it's okay. Or hey, whatever, you know, no big deal. He says, big deal, I forgive. Okay? And so forgiveness... Uh, Requires that we call the debt a debt. As our creator, we owe God obedience. Yes, we owe God obedience. We owe him worship, honor, reverence, and our love and affection. And yet we do not give him what we owe. How much does he deserve of our love, honor, affection? All day long. That's the answer. All day long. Seven days a week we don't give him what he deserves and so god does not forgive you and i of imaginary debts god gives uh, forgives us real debts that we owe him as martin luther once said sin boldly don't sin small let your sins be big because god only forgives real sins so there's a clarification that I want to make, and there's a distinction that I want to make without they like getting too far into the weeds because I can't say everything about everything, okay? <laughs> clarification. The context of this prayer is forgiveness between us and an offender. When we absorb the debt that they owe us, that does not mean that they are absolved of the debt that they may owe the court or the community or that they owe God. We're still on the hook for that okay we are simply and I say simply as if this is like easy but I'm, I'm just making a clarification here okay we are simply releasing them from the debt they owe us I will not collect that from you I will not talk with you about that I'm not expecting that from you but it's between people that's the con- context okay second here's a distinction that's important forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation okay Although it is critical it is the first step of reconciliation you can have reconciliation without forgiveness but they're not the same thing okay forgiveness is a work that can be done by one person it only takes one person to forgive an offense and a wrong and an injury okay it is between us and that offender or offenders if it's multiple people whether they participate in it or not, whether they still are alive or, or not, they may be dead. You can forgive a dead person that wronged you. Isn't that good news? Reconciliation, however, requires hard work in addition to, to forgiving that person. And it takes a lot of time, if at all possible. Okay, uh, uh, It's conditional also upon that part, the participation of the other person. If they're not willing to come to that table and have an honest conversation about what they did, then that's not going to be possible. But you can still forgive them. Okay. So whereas reconciliation is not always possible in this life, forgiveness is always possible when we pray. When we pray. Jesus teaches us that we should always seek forgiveness and we should always seek to forgive our debtors. He says what earlier, what did he say in the Beatitudes? Those that show mercy, what happens? They will be shown mercy. And that's why you're not a wimp for showing mercy. You're wise. What's he say? Those that are peacemakers will what? Be called the Son of God. This is flourishing, this upside-down kingdom. Secondly, how often do we do this? Okay, seven times. All right, you guys good? Let's go home. Seven times, you're done. No, not quite. Uh, Forgiveness is ongoing. Why? Because debt is dynamic. Forgiveness is ongoing because relational debt is dynamic. So forgiveness is less of a thing that we do; and it's more of a posture of our heart when we see that person and bump, or think of that person. You understand? This is a pro. Is a way of being in the world. Jesus is talking about a way of being in the world. Yes. So let's look again at the text. Meet me in verse 12. He says, and forgive us our debt as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, notice the verb. Notice the verb is in the active tense, just like the verbs that are in all the other previous scriptures that we've looked at. There's nothing different about this. Okay. We are, Jesus tells, instructs you and I to, to uh, pray on an ongoing, regular basis For god's true nature to be known for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven to provide our daily bread and this this doesn't get a pass this doesn't this is not like an exception or something i want to point the context out we're to regularly and ongoingly ask him to forgive what our debts our debts our sins our trespasses which is why many church traditions say the lord's prayer every week or they have a time of confession because they got you got to practice it somehow We got to practice and by the way this mirrors jesus says our regular activity of forgiving those that are indebted to us on earth those two phrases are inextricably linked and we cannot unhitch those okay so therefore, whatever kind of forgiveness that we are regularly asking from the Father, get this, whatever kind of forgiveness that is that we're supposed to be asking regularly and daily for, this means it's not like this one-and-done kind of forgiveness. Are you tracking with me? It's not like this one-and-done, uh, I'm saved Forget kind of type of style of forgiveness, species of forgiveness, Okay. To use a Pauline word, we're not regularly asking for forgiveness of justification before God. That final pronouncement of that we're not guilty before God. That's not the kind of forgiveness Jesus is talking about here. So what kind of forgiveness is he talking about? What kind of forgiveness uh, are we supposed to be asking for as a regular ongoing basis? Well, remember, the context of this prayer is relational in relationship, right? So it's going to be very helpful. For And I puzzled over this. And by the way, I, I worked on this. This bothered me. It ought to bother you a little bit. And so what I found out is that it's really helpful for us to understand the difference, since this is all about relationship, between union and communion. They're related but not the same. They're one but not the same. Okay? Union, and this is right out of the dictionary, by the way. This is not my definition. All right? Union is the fact of being joined with another. We have things today called what? Unions. Right? I'm joined. I'm with them. I'm not with them. I'm with them. Right? So that's union. When someone gets married, where well, they join what? In union. Holy matrimony, right? It's the fact of being joined with another. Communion, on the other hand, is the participation, get this, of exchanging intimate thoughts and feelings. To be in union with someone is the objective fact of being joined together with that person. To be in communion with someone is the subjective, real-time experience of that unified relationship. Are you tracking with me? These are important distinctions to make. Communion is personally experiencing the rewards, the pleasures, and the benefits of that relationship, of that unification in real time. Which, by the way, is vital for keeping the union. This is not like one's important and one's optional. It's not set up that way by God's design. Please hear this. So get this. We know this is true, by the way, because we see this on earth. We see this in real time. This is not coming from nowhere. You can have union, but not have communion with people. Amen. Like what? Like a husband and a wife. What is marriage? Marriage is an it's a symbol, it's an analogy between the relationship between what? God and his church. It's pointing to something. You can have of the husband and wife union but not communion. So they may be legally declared one. Somebody in authority legally declared that they're unified, that they are joined, but due to the many debts that have accrued in that relationship over time, the many sins, the many paper cuts. The many you know hard words they're not physically in the same house anymore you understand what i'm saying so their union legally declared but they're not living like that they're not encountering experiencing the joy and the pleasure of that union they're not in communion and so so listen to this though it is theoretically possible the truth is it's really difficult to maintain that kind of split relationship forever. Is it like theoretically possible? Maybe. But really doubtful. Is it possible for you to be legally declared justified and united to God the Father, but not in actual communion with Him? Day after day, week after week, month after month because of the sins that you have accumulated for weeks and weeks and weeks and it just keeps separating you communally from him? Is that possible? Maybe it's possible, theoretically. But the longer that we experience the lack of communion with God, the more miserable our union with God Becomes to us. It is not like a source of blessing, it's a source of guilt. Makes us feel icky. You understand what I'm saying? It becomes experientially distasteful. And so while we may be able to endure that splitness, that hypocriticalness for a little while, it's impossible for the human soul to endure that kind of ongoing living forever. Something's gonna break, something's gonna give. We're going to eventually say, "Look, here's the honest truth, right?" Now, as Protestants, we get really allergic to anything that even remotely smells like Catholicism, right? Can the church say "Amen"? Yeah, we get real jittery about that. And so, this idea that Jesus calls us to regularly confess our debts against Him and others, regularly asking God for forgiveness—it's one of those things. That makes us kind of reactive. We don't actually take this serious and think about what Jesus is calling us to do. We, you know, our reaction is like, hey, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I've already said the prayer. I've already been justified finally. I've already been forgiven of all my debts, so I don't need to ask God to forgive me of any sins ever again. I'm good. I'm covered in the blood. Right? That's the knee-jerk reaction, because we haven't taken time to actually like work through this. And yet, and yet, here it is on the lips of Jesus. So this distinction between union and communion is vitally important for us to grasp if you and I are going to endure to the end with our faith intact. If we are going to persevere to the end. There's, by the way, there are lots of examples in the scriptures about this. I only have time to mention two, okay? I'm just going to mention two. I'll give another one from Jesus from the gospel, okay? John 13. He's about to be crucified. John 13, 8, washing the feet. Peter said to him, "Ah, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share. What's that next word? With me. Where's your reward in the Lord's prayer? It's with the father. It's a with reward. It's with him. It's not just it's not from him. The reward is being with him. If you don't let me wash your feet, you have no share with me. Okay? Simon Peter said, Lord, then not only my feet, I'm going to do you one better. (laughs) That's my paraphrase. Not only my feet, but also my hands and also my head. Just dump it all. Let's just take a bath right here in front of all the other guys. Okay? And Jesus, now listen to this reply. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash. Oh, except there's an exception. Except for what? His feet. Which means what? He does need to wash his feet. He does need. There is a necessity. He does need to wash his feet, but he is completely clean and you are clean. There's a lot there. John uses the words wash, bathe, Clean matthew uses the words debt and debtor they're the same concept john's saying the same thing jesus is saying peter's saying the same thing that jesus is saying paul's going to say the same thing that jesus is saying all right just a different way when jesus bathes us he says when jesus bathes us with a bath what's that bath what's that bath you got baptized into what's that bath you got plunged under it's the atoning blood of jesus when you took that blood bath, I know that's gross, but when you took that black bath, that was a cleansing, atoning bath, right? You were declared by who? Jesus completely clean. Like he says right here, and you are clean. You are clean. I'm letting you know. You are with him. In other words, you are legally declared in union with him. The judges declare that you're legally unified with him. And yet Jesus says he does need to wash us over and over and over and over on a daily basis. So we got to figure out a way to square that circle, right? In dusty Jerusalem, people who had bathed for the day would accumulate dirt on their feet and dirt on their sandals. Just a dusty place to live, right? Just by not doing anything wrong, just by walking around in the world, just by doing their daily life, just by going to the grocery store. They just get accumulate this caked up dirt and mud by the end of the day on their feet. And so before they could come into someone's house, they'd have to wash their feet. A servant would come out, but they'd have to just wait, come into the meal, but just wait. You can't enter until, see, we're in a union. I invited you. We're in a relationship, but you can't actually eat it. You see where Jesus is going here? Jesus is saying, if you've accepted my atoning bath, my my washing, that was going to completely cleanse you, then I declare that you are already clean from all your debts that you owe me. You're in union with me, but you still accumulate these debts every day just by interacting with people, just by going about your life. And your daily sin, your daily debts will prevent you from enjoying from enjoying communion with me. Oh, by the way, and everyone else in the church. If you let them accumulate, if you let them build up. Jesus says, so you don't need another bath to come enjoy the dinner. Like when we walk into someone's house, we go say, "I love to eat, but I got to go hop in the shower." Right? What do we? we don't do that, right? Because you might get sick. What do we do? What well, we give our hands a shower because that's all we need. Jesus is saying the same thing. We do this. We live this way, guys. Says you don't need to have another bath, but you do need to have your feet washed in order to truly enjoy this wonderful feast that I prepared for you because I'm the host of the meal and I want you here and I'm inviting you in. You need to come let me, your king, your savior, get this, wash your feet. I'll be willing to wash your feet. I'll get on my knees and wash your feet. I love you that much. So here's one more example from scriptures. First Peter chapter three, verse seven. Check this out. The apostle says, likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. It's a way of being. It's not a thing you do. It's a way of being with that other person, interacting with that person. Live with your wives in an understanding way. And how? Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you. With you of the grace of life. And here's why. You ready? So that your prayers will not be hindered. Whoa. I take every verse serious in this book. That's why I believe what I believe, because I take it real serious, not because I don't take it serious. I take that serious. God says if husbands refuse, as a, as a, not like once in a while, like we all make mistakes, but as a way of being, as an ongoing way, if husbands refuse to honor their wives as equals in the relationship. If they refuse to live with them in an understanding way, which means whatever we're discussing, I I just want to understand where you're coming from. That's all that means. I just I want to. Can you tell me more about why you feel that way? If they refuse to live with your wife, their wife, uh, in an understanding way towards them, as the woman is due, right, as she is owed, so says God in this verse, the man's prayers will be hindered. So let's put that in modern language, shall we? If husbands ignore their wives, call for help. I don't like what you're doing. It's good for you, but it's causing me like major heartburn. Please listen to me. We can't go through it. We can't do that. I don't... If he continues to just refuse to listen his wife's call for help, if he refuses as a matter of being to not value her voice in the relationship, then husbands should not expect God to pay attention to them when they call for help from him. They shouldn't expect God to value their voice when they pray. You ignoring her? let's see how you like it buddy you got this right okay have it your way have it your way doesn't mean that they lose their salvation whatever that phrase means doesn't mean they lose their salvation but it does mean you're gonna feel pretty miserable until that day of salvation comes and you might even question if you're saved or not doesn't seem like God's listening to me you're right because he sees what you're doing. Guys, here's the punchline. You ready? We ask for forgiveness on a regular, ongoing basis because <laughs> debt is dynamic. Debt, relational debt, is not static. It's dynamic. And it will hinder, not our union, but it will hinder our communion both with God and with other People in a very real and a very tangible experiential way, not a hypothetical way. Okay? Let me ask this question because I love you, Crossway. Let me ask you this question. How practiced are you at confessing your debts? How practiced are you for asking for a washing from Jesus? Are you pre practiced at that? Or is that really hard for you to do? Because it feels weird, not normal. How about this question? How practice are you confessing your debts to other people that you can see? I've had several people in my life say, I don't have a problem saying I'm sorry when I'm wrong. Thank God I'm not wrong very often. And they didn't laugh. Here's the secret. Jesus is, listen, he's always for your flourishing, right? He's at, Jesus walked the planet like he knew a secret nobody else did. Have you noticed that? And he's got a secret here. and He wants to give you this secret. He wants you to know something that would be really good for us. It's easier for us to extend forgiveness to other people when we are in the practice of regularly asking our heavenly father to forgive us. Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's easier. It feels normal. And by the way, by the way, it is normal. God's the only one who's always right every time. And God's the only one who ever can say the phrase always and never. Only God always and only God nevers. Not you and me. You hear me? Hope you hear me. Regularly confessing our sins as a church. This is why churches for centuries did this in worship regularly. We took that out of worship. I'm just saying this is why we practice. It's practice. It's practice. It's not a rote religion. It's practice. You're practicing something that's shaping you. Because it tenderizes you. It tenderizes your hard heart. It keeps the calcification, off the hardness off your heart. When you together with these people go, I'm sorry, Lord, forgive my debts. Here's, the great, here's a great foot-washing prayer that you can say daily if you just want to try it. And you can say your own prayer, but I'm just going to give you a practical application. You could pray this, Father, forgive me for not loving you with all my heart and with all my soul and all my strength and all my mind and not loving my neighbor as myself. I'm just telling you I haven't done that. Forgive me, Father, for the sins that I've done and for the good that I've left undone this week. This is simple prayer. It just keeps tenderizing your heart and keeps you in communion with Jesus. Okay, so why should we forgive people who don't deserve it? This truly is, this love your enemy, this forgive people stuff, this is the most controversial teachings of Jesus. And it sets Christianity apart from any other religion of of civilization. This is it. This is what we should be known for. Why do we forgive people? That don't deserve it they hurt us they didn't I just say that it was real they really did here's why to refuse to forgive others while expecting God to forgive us is hypocritical and foolish that's two reasons it's not just the. it's do you see what Jesus said it's not just the not forgiving people He's getting at your heart. It's the not forgiving people while expecting God to forgive me. That's what bothers him. That's the, he's trying to help us see that. You understand? To do that is hypocritical and it is foolish for you, for me. Let's go to the Bible, verse 14 and 15. It's right here. Jesus, this is Jesus talking now. For if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive you trespasses in general no your trespasses the ones you actually did right So listen, there's two ways Jesus motivates us. And God in general, the Scripture motivates us towards a life of flourishing. Two main tools, if you will, that he uses. Gracious promises and stern warnings. And and, and while pride of place goes to the gracious promises, that's that's the tool that Jesus uses most often, most frequently that he leans into. I have promises. I want you to flourish. I have good for you. Jesus also uses stern warnings and we need to make sure we don't take the bite out of them, okay? We don't defang them, okay? You don't defang his promises, do you? Those have bite, right? Let's be consistent. So listen, please listen. Though the wording here sounds harsh, and there are some hard teachings of Jesus, and though they sound harsh, Jesus is actually doing us a kindness, Please hear this. Jesus is being kind to us. Right here, Jesus is saving us from being hypocrites and from being fools by giving us wisdom that's wrapped in a warning. Please don't tune out right now. Please don't get distracted right now. Please listen to God's word right now. Remember, Jesus wants us to act with wholehearted righteousness. Yes? That's what we've been saying for week and weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks. He wants you and I to, add, that's the kind of righteousness he accepts. Wholehearted righteousness, not just, put, he doesn't want us just to perform like surface uh, righteous deeds and pray surface, uh, you know, religious pious sounding prayers. A surface righteous prayer is asking God to forgive our sins while refusing to forgive others that sin against us. That kind of prayer gives the appearance of humility. It gives, listen guys, listen guys right here. It gives the appearance of humility. It gives the appearance of holiness. It gives the appearance of reverence for God. It gives the appearance that that person praying actually acknowledges they need mercy. They, it looks like they, oh, that guy really, or that woman really thinks they need mercy and they need forgiveness and grace. But it's hypocritical. It's acting. They are acting like they're serious about needing God, mercy from God, but they don't really believe that they need mercy from God. How do you know? Because faith is invisible, right? How can you know? Well, James, the brother of Jesus, tells us, I can't see your faith, but I can see your works. I can see how you live your life. Show me your faith, and I'll show you my works. Jesus says, By your fruit, you will know them to be my followers or not. You can know. How do you know? because they're unwilling to give mercy to those that wronged them. That's how you know that they don't really think they need mercy. Forget, it doesn't matter what you hear and pray. Put this another way. A person who is not serious about showing forgiveness to a debtor, just they can't be serious about needing forgiveness themselves of their own debts against God. It's hypocritical. Listen, what does that really mean? It means that that person is a split person. They're they're split. They're not whole. They're not one. They're split. They're double-minded, to use James's language, which means that double-minded literally means trying to look at two directions at the same time. Can't do that. And Jesus says, listen, if that's you, you should not expect to have your prayers for forgiveness heard by God. Because those aren't really real prayers. James, the brother of Jesus, actually expands on this part of the Lord's prayer in James chapter 1. Listen to what he says. If any of you lacks wisdom, what's Jesus been talking about for three chapters? Wisdom! Right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Get this, get this. Who's God? Hallowed be his name. Who is he? Who gives generously to all. Without reproach. That means without making fun of you that you, oh my gosh, you don't have wisdom. And it will be given to him. But let that person ask what? In faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in his, all his ways. Okay? Listen, James is saying, if you ask, lack wisdom, ask God for the wisdom. But don't ask him for wisdom and then doubt. Is he talking, doubt what? Doubt what? That should be the question. Is he talking about just doubting in general? No. He's saying doubting that you actually need the wisdom that you're asking for. Don't ask God for wisdom. Listen, when wisdom's sitting in the room and you don't want to listen to it, don't do that to God. Man, I'm preaching myself out of my clothes today, man. I'm getting warm. That person should not expect God to answer that prayer. Because God won't be mocked. He knows that what you weren't really talking to him. You were talking to everyone else that was listening that you want them to think you're a really good Christian and spiritual person. Right? God is a double minded, split person prayer. It's not a whole person prayer. And so that's why it's hypocritical. Hypoc- have you guys figured this out? According to Jesus, hypocrites aren't bad immoral people. Hypocrites are good people. Look at the order of the phrase back in the Lord's Prayer. Look at the order because the order matters. If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you. Listen, what's he saying? There's an order. Refusing to forgive others is evidence that I may not have truly received God's forgiveness regardless of the pious-sounding prayers that come out of my mouth. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm saying it might not. You can't have assurance on that particular issue. both James and Jesus say God is rich in mercy and guess what knows he rich he's not rich and stingy God's rich and he's really generous like this stuff just kind of like flows out of his pockets he's generous with copious amounts of wisdom copious amounts of forgiveness copious amounts of love he just wants to dump into your life if you ask him for this right listen God is more ready to forgive us than we are to even ask him to forgive like he's already ready already Okay? But he only gives that to people who really believe they need it. They need it. So please, please get what Jesus is saying here. It's a bigger deal than you may realize. A heart that is closed off to showing mercy to those that wrong them. Is a heart that is also closed off to experiencing God's mercy. Let me say that again, real slow. A heart that is closed off to showing mercy to those that wronged them is also a heart that is closed off from receiving and experiencing that mercy from God. I'm saying it's not like you don't have it, I'm just saying he's saying you can't experience that. You cannot close your heart to one and not the other because our heart doesn't work like that. Your heart's not a valve. The heart is the core of your being. You can't be a double-minded split person. That's what he's saying, right? Don't work that way. If you, listen, how about this? If you bind people to the relational debt that they owe you, if you say, I'm gonna bind you to that until you pay every dime off, until you say you're sorry, till you whatever, if you relationally bind people to the debt that they owe you instead of releasing them, Jesus is saying you're also binding yourself to the debt that you owe God. How about I show you in scripture that? Let's stay in Matthew. Let's stay with Jesus. Matthew 18, 18. The context of this is people that are offending in the church, right? Church discipline. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, it'll be loosed in heaven. So not only is refusing to forgive those who wrong us hypocritical, but it's also just flat out foolish. It's a foolish way to go through life. And we'll talk more about wise and foolish builders next week. It's walling off our only possible pathway to experience that forgiveness ourselves an open heart to God, an open heart to God, It's becoming calcified. You've walled it off. You can't wall it off here and think this is open. It's walled off too. Don't deceive yourself. Don't deceive yourself. And here's the most important reason to forgive people that don't deserve it. I promise you two reasons and you get a bonus reason. Okay? Here's the bonus reason. And it's actually, frankly, the most important reason. It's because Jesus forgives us. Can the church say amen? Because Jesus forgives us listen instead of binding us to our massive debt until we paid every last dime that we rightfully owed the king of kings and lord of lords our king paid our debt he didn't pay it down he paid it off that's the reason that's the reason that's what gives you the ultimately the power to do that Jesus took the bath that we deserved. And it was a bloodbath. Hmm? He took a loss, but it was a loss of infinite value. And why? Why did Jesus do something like that? So that you, a known debtor, could be loosed from your creditor Isn't that good news? So that you, yes, you could be made rich. Rich in his love, rich in his mercy, rich in his peace, rich in his kindness, rich in his gentleness, and self-control in the fruit of the Spirit. He became poor so that you be rich. He went debt broke so you could be surplused. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves me. Guys, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, Amen. And when the gospel comes home, not to your brain, not to your head, but it somehow penetrates all the way down into your heart. When the gospel comes home to our heart, it makes us want to forgive those that don't deserve it. Ask Jesus to help you see how great a debt you owe and how generous he has been to you through the cross. Amen? Let's pray.